0: Gresham College Presents Could We Destroy the Universe? by Frank Close, OBE, Gresham Professor of Astronomy. What's this all about? Let me just give you the background. Last uh, summer, at the British Association, there was a couple of talks on this theme which uh, got reported, or misreported, in the media with some incredible headlines. And so uh, I thought it would be a nice thing to talk about Um, And the reasons why it's done today, I can talk about in private, but that's another matter. Um, No no mysteries. So let me just give you, first of all, a a brief background and then try to develop the whole story. Uh, Many of you who've been along before have seen me give you this little brief history of the universe. Um, It's about 15 billion years old. And if we think of each billion years of its life (coughs) being an hour of real time, and if I was giving this talk at 2 o'clock rather than now, so that it ended at 3 o'clock this afternoon. The challenge I'd said to people was, imagine what you were doing at midnight, and think that the Big Bang happened then, and then each hour corresponds to a billion years in the history of the universe, and it won't be until 3 o'clock this afternoon that we reach now. But along the way, it's a surprise to realise that nothing very much happened, as far as we're concerned, until about 10 o'clock this morning. It's only at that time spell that the sun appeared, and it was only at about 11 o'clock that the earth appeared, And it wouldn't be until about half past two that the oldest fossils appeared. And it wouldn't be until half a minute before the end of the uh, the three o'clock that the first humanoids would appear. The millennium is a blink of an eye, and then now would be at three o'clock. So that's the universe. It survived that long fine. But the great mystery that we've talked about before is how is it managed even to survive after the first billionth billionth of a billionth of a billionth of a second? Because at the start of it all... All our experiments, all our theories, everything that we know, says that not just the matter that we're made of today appeared out of the Big Bang, but antimatter, the exact opposite to it. And for those of you who haven't been to an antimatter talk of mine, I drew the analogy, if you think of the sand on the seashore after the tide's gone out, and a child digs a hole to make a sandcastle. So the sandcastle is like matter and the hole that's left behind is like antimatter. When you put the sand back in the hole, everything destroys itself. So one of the great mysteries is, how is it that the sandcastle survived? How is it that matter, 15 billion years later, is here making us? Well, that's a puzzle we don't know the answer to, but we do know that the universe managed to get through that first puzzle. That isn't the problem that we're meeting today. The worry that has been raised is, could we, in these high-energy experiments that we're doing, which are taking us back to what the universe was like very early on, inadvertently destroy it again, in quotes. So, I thought to start, I'll show you a sort of history of the universe in temperature and energy, and the roadmap of where we're going. So here we are today, with the order of 15 billion years after the Big Bang, and the temperature out in space is very, very cold. Here on Earth, the temperature is about 300 degrees above absolute zero. We're warm because the sun is shining at us. The centre of the sun is at a temperature of about 10 million degrees. Now, we are made of atoms and molecules, matter that we're used to. In the sun, that stuff can't survive. The atoms are disrupted into what's called a plasma. So what's going on in the Sun is very unlike what we have here. But we've done experiments, we know what the inside of the Sun looks like and so forth. Indeed the whole of the universe was similar to the temperature of the Sun about three minutes after the Big Bang. The Big Bang was incredibly hot, it cooled down as time elapsed. So we did experiments up to this sort of condition 50, 60, 70 years ago. More recently we've been able to create higher and higher energies or higher and higher temperatures in experiments at particle accelerators like those at CERN. And today, um, we've just completed these experiments at the Large Electron-Positron Collider, the 27 kilometer ring in CERN that we've all heard about before, which take us back to temperature conditions like this, which is what the universe was like just less than a billionth of a second after the Big Bang. What we are going to be doing in about five years' time with the Large Hadron Collider at CERN is going to even more extreme conditions which is what the universe was like even earlier on. And uh, the question, to draw an analogy, and I'll show you what I mean by this as we go along, is suppose that we inadvertently, in some sense, melted the universe, and then it froze back again. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's go back to the world of the very cold, and I'll just give you an, an illustration which we're going to develop. The snowflake. Now, if it's colder than the freezing point of water, you have snowflakes. So uh, imagine that we were snowflakes, that the universe that we live in is a snowflake like that. And then some snowperson uh, experimental physicist finds a way of increasing the temperature of that little universe just above the freezing point of water. So the snowflakes all melt, not everywhere, in this very controlled little region in the experiment. Fine, and they discover that the snowflake melts as their theory says it should. And they're all very happy. Then the thing cools down again, and the water refreezes as a snowflake. Now, if you're lucky, it refreezes in the same snowflake that you started with. But there's this statement, they say, no two snowflakes are alike. And so the analogy that we might think is this. If indeed it is the case, as we theoretically suspect, that something analogous to a, a melting, or in the jargon, a phase transition takes place up at conditions like this. Could it be that, just like melting the snowflake and then it freezes back into a different one, you might here have melted the universe in the little region of the experiments in Geneva, and then when it froze back again, it froze back into a different form, and if that different form was more stable than the one that we are used to, could the whole lot collapse into a universe which previously didn't exist? And it's that sense of the question, could we destroy the universe, uh, was raised and thought about and so what I want to do is to tell you something about why I'm not particularly worried <sighs> but uh, there we are. Um, the, uh, if any of you read the article that I wrote in The Guardian uh, yesterday, um, I was inspired in part by a book that Kurt Vonnegut wrote called um, Cat's Cradle, that's right, in, in that um, there was this mad scientist, scientists are always mad, Um, We always wear white coats as well. I'm sure you noticed that. Um, And we are bald. (laughs) And uh, in Cat's Cradle, this mad scientist has created something called Ice Nine, which is a more stable form of water than normal water. And the thing is, if you put this Ice Nine, just one little seed of Ice Nine in this glass of orange juice, it would instantly freeze, because it makes the more stable form. And uh, all goes well until, at the end of the book, this person just completely loses it all, and throws some ice nine in a pond, which instantly freezes. But the pond has got some dribbles into a little stream, and the stream freezes, and the stream goes into the river, which freezes, and the end of the book is, and all the oceans froze with a great varumph, and that is the uh, thing that could happen to the whole of the universe, or not as the case may be. So uh, what I want to do then is to uh, just give you the brief background, which is that there is a new accelerator that has just begun work in the states, and there's this is one in Geneva that's going to be beginning in about five years' time. And a couple of years ago, the director of the new uh, accelerator in the states convened a committee of scientists to look into the question as to whether some terrible disaster could happen. The background to it, incidentally, politically, was that his predecessor had just taken early retirement because there had been uh, local activists who had raised questions about tritium. It turned out that a very small amount of tritium had got, had leaked out of uh, some reactor on the site. And although this was well below any concerns in, in safety hazards, even in, in New York State, nonetheless, there was so much noise created that the, the director took early retirement. He just got fed up with it. His successor, therefore, not surprisingly, the moment these activists, somebody raised the question, are they going to do something terrible at this, no accelerator? Um, He obviously uh, covered his backside, as they say, by saying, OK, I'll have a committee look at this, they will report, and then it's their problem, so to speak. And uh, the, the point was, the committee reported, and they wrote the report in the language that scientists use, which is, you can never prove a negative. You can only say something is exceedingly unlikely. And so the report ended up by saying that the idea that one would destroy the universe in these experiments was exceedingly unlikely. <laughs> and then in the media uh, report uh, last summer, um, the, uh, the comparison was made. They actually asked me, you know, what did this actually mean in real terms? I said, well, it's like winning the, lo- the chance of winning the lottery. He said, but people, I said, just a minute, it's like the chance of me winning the lottery two weeks in succession. And he said, ah, right. And then some people said... There's, there's a chance you could do that. I thought if only it were true. <laughs> um, anyway, let's uh, let's uh, set the scene as to, I mean, it's, it's a fair enough question. You know, one is entering into areas that one has never entered before, and uh, how sure can you be that some horrible thing is not going to happen? Or conversely, why might you think that something might happen? So, what do we know about things? So, let's uh, look at this little temperature chart of where we are now and the sort of things that happen when you go to hotter and hotter conditions starting with that snowflake. So we we have the snowflake, and I'll use that as the metaphor for sort of stability. And we can melt the snowflake. The snowflake disappears, but the atoms that it's made of still survive. And uh, I show here the Mendeleev Periodic Table of the Elements to sort of be a metaphor for the state of matter you're in at these sort of temperatures that we're used to on Earth. Now, if you heat above a few thousand degrees, then you disrupt the atoms. You eject all of the electrons, leaving the nuclei behind. You have a state of plasma, such as you find inside the sun. But the nuclei themselves, they still survive. And uh, there's a pattern of nuclear isotopes that are known that survive temperatures all the way up to very extremes like this. Now, the conditions that we're currently at are that we can see the world of the quarks which make up the constituents of atomic nuclei. So this is the pattern of stuff that we have today. And the theories all suggest that if you get to temperatures just a bit more than this, somewhere between where LEP was and where the LHC will be, that in a sense these quarks themselves will, well, there'll be a sort of another phase change and something might happen when you call back. So that's the sort of background to it. So let's first of all start by looking at the things that we're made of and ask the question, first of all, could there be other things that we haven't yet thought of that are out there? And uh, so let's blow up, if that's the right metaphor in this circumstance, um, that little picture. So this is uh, the, the world of the quarks. The up and the down quark are the ones that create the protons and neutrons that create the nuclei of all the atoms of the stuff that we're made of. Nature for some reason wasn't satisfied with those two. It made two heavier versions called the charm and the strange and two heavier versions still called the top and the bottom. Now, back in the heat of the Big Bang, all of these different varieties of quark were made sort of equally. So the first question you might ask is, so uh, what's happened to these? <laughs> Well, because, I like to think of this as like nature's ground floor, its second floor, and its third floor, okay? Um, These things being very massive, Einstein's famous equation that E equals mc squared, m is the mass, so the large mass that these have means that they've got a large amount of energy inside them. That's the E. And nature likes to, if you like, likes to run downhill. Water likes to run down to the bottom of the mountain, so to speak. So these things, because of their high mass, are highly unstable. And they decay out within less than a billionth of a second, tumbling down from the third floor to the second floor, the second floor down to the ground floor, and that is as far as it goes, we believe. And that is why today, 15 billion years later, only the up and the down quarks are left, and they are the seeds that make the protons, the neutrons, of atomic nuclei of matter as we know it. So that is how things are now. You can imagine, if you're really into science fiction, that we were having this talk a billionth of a billionth of a second after the Big Bang and we happened to be made out of top and bottom quarks. And I say they have just discovered that there are two lower floors beneath the one, and we're not going to last very long. We're going to die out within a billionth of a second into these and another billionth of a second into those. You are now entitled to ask me the question, are... Ah, could it be then that there's a basement Um, there's another what I might call super light quarks Um, I've called them Laurel and Hardy because I remember the the line he would say that's another fine mess we've got ourselves into (laughs) so so the first question you've got here is uh, could there be another uh, layer down in the basement and that uh, after about 15 billion years and a couple of weeks, uh, these things die out and all cascade down to there? Well, thankfully the answer is no. Um, The reason why is this, that all of these quarks have got electrical charge. If there was a basement layer that we, our constituents, could eventually decay down into, these basement things would also have to have electrical charge. Now, if they've got electrical charge, it is It's it's impossible to stop the following thing happening in an experiment. What we've been doing at CERN for years and years is that we fire electrons and positrons at each other with a lot of energy. They annihilate each other and make a sort of mini Big Bang. And out of that mini Big Bang appear particles and antiparticles, particles of matter and the corresponding antimatter. Anything at all with electrical charge that exists in nature will be produced along with its antimatter partner, so long as it's lighter than the amount of energy put in. So if there were super light things around, we'd have been producing them by the billions for years and years and years and years and would know all about them. So there isn't anything lighter than us, exotic stuff, waiting to, for us to tip down to the basement. So at least that part of the thing is good news. So the first part of the story is that um, there isn't more stable exotic fundamental particles down there that we might eventually cascade into at some point. So that's that's the good news. Observant people will notice that this transparency can be turned upside down and the smiley face will become sad, but we'll see why in a moment. OK, so where we've got to so far is that the basic constituents that make us, maybe the electrons, the up and the down quarks and these weird neutrinos, that make matter as we know it, that make the universe as it is today. They are indeed what I call the ground floor elementary bits. There's nothing in the basement that they're going to tumble into. But we aren't individual elementary bits. The bits combine together to make protons and neutrons and nuclei and atoms and elements and big structures. So the question is, are these basic bits clustered together? in the most stable way. Is it possible that one could rearrange these bits into a more stable form? So that we aren't actually stable, we're what's called metastable. Um, like if this pen, if it's balanced on its point here, um, is it's, it's metastable, in principle if go, it might stay there, but the likelihood is it falls into a more stable configuration. So could all the basic bits of matter that are currently made us, are we in a metastable state, waiting to fall into the most stable state? Or, are we indeed in the most stable states and we can rest happy at night? So that's the question that uh, I now want to to move towards. So let's talk about uh, metastability and stability and then see what it has to do with these experiments. Well, you've you seen me show this in a, another context, but um, I'll show it again. This is the old paradox that the philosopher Buridan came up with 600 years ago. The idea of uh, an ass which is in a metastable state in the sense that it is exactly midway between two identical bunches of carrots and by the symmetry of the thing this ass cannot choose whether to eat the carrots this side or the carrots that side and therefore it starves to death and if that is an example of metastability that's looking for a more stable solution I can't think of one and of course that doesn't happen in practice something will make the the donkey choose this set or that set Uh, to make a more serious example um... Let's take the case of, of two magnets. And so if I've got the, the magnets, say, with its north pole pointing down and the other magnet with its north pole pointing up, and you, you know what happens when you try to hold them there. I mean, they, it's very hard to hold them in place. This is a metastable state in that if you've got them exactly lined up, then you know, there's, there's no reason why it should go one way or the other. But the slightest deviation will make it go into the more stable case where the things are parallel like that. Or, parallel like that. So, this is an example of metastable, and these are examples of the stable possibilities. So, to make the analogy, I hope that the universe that we are currently living in is like this. The possibility that the universe that we are living in is structured like that is the question that is sort of behind all of this. And let's now look at that uh, one more stage further. By my little demo thing that I've shown you before, but it's always nice. So here is a model for the universe where the central magnets points horizontally and the ones next to it are vertical. And this is like the universe in the cold state that we're in today. The experiments that we're going to do are going to heat this universe up. going to turn these magnets into motion so that they're all sort of spinning around like this, and the, and the scientists will look at this, and that's all wonderful, and then we'll wait to see what happens. After the experiment's finished, the whole lot will cool down again, back to the universe that we started with, maybe, and maybe not. Let's see what happens. critical question is Is that central magnet going to end up horizontal, making the universe that we started with, or is it going to end up vertical and make a universe that we didn't start with? And it looks like this time it's goodbye, folks. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, of course, we could do it again, but there ain't any chance to do it again. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this is an example of the, the, the metastability, That in the, in, in, the hot, in the hot or the high energy state, all those magnets are whirling around. That's what the universe was like, say, before 10th of a billionth of a second. And then the universe cooled down, and it went through a phase transition, if you like it turned into a snowflake. It turned into this particular configuration. Then the experimentalists uh, come along 15 billion years later. They do an experiment which heats a little bit of the universe up to here, and then... Did it roll back again this way or did it roll back again that way? Well, actually, in this case, it doesn't matter because this state and this state have got exactly the same energy. The thing that we're worrying about is the possibility that one of these states might have uh, a lower energy because nature always goes into the lowest energy state. So to give the example again with uh, with water freezing, you know, just above 0 degrees um water stays water or orange juice stays orange juice. Uh, When you come to naught degrees the reason that water turns into snowflakes or into ice is that when the, the molecules are ordered in this particular way below this temperature they have lower energy overall than when they're buzzing around as they are in the liquid state. And so, It's lowering the energy of the thing to the lowest available state that turns water into snowflakes. So what's that got to do with the the situation that we're interested in? Well, the situation that we're interested in is more carefully represented like this. That here is the universe as uh, we live in at the moment. And the experimentalists are going to do an experiment where they raise it up to the metastable state, and then the question is, does it roll back to here, or could it be that there is a lower energy configuration of the conventional matter waiting for it to tumble into? Well, if it does, there's two ways this could happen. One of which is one that we don't need to be concerned about, which is that, yes, I will fire these little particles together in a volume that is much, much less than the size of an atom, This little volume will melt. Then this little volume will freeze back again, and it might freeze back into this new stable form in the size of an atom, and that's the end of the story. In which case, that'll be interesting scientifically, and we don't need to worry about it. The other one is if I sort of, what I call flushing it down the toilet, another example of this same sort of thing. That here again, we have got the universe as it currently is now in the stable state then you do the experiment where you energise it in this case by adding water to it and of course because of the way the thing is linked together then the whole lot drains down, literally speaking uh, into the metastable state so this was the question is it possible that in these experiments one could first of all Melts the matter that we're made of and then the matter discovered that there is a more stable way it could put itself back together again and in the process take the whole universe with it so now let's try to uh, make this a little more literal by uh, going back to uh, the, little, the temperature thing here to show you what actually it is that we're we're talking about Okay, so uh, starting off again with with the snowflake, I've told you the story that we melt that. Um, The temperatures that we are living at here on Earth, across here, are temperatures where atoms and molecules survive, but the electrons in the outer reaches of the atoms are uh, jiggling about such that they can radiate and absorb light, that's how we're seeing each other. Heat them up, you can destroy those atoms, you can eject the electrons totally and be left with the nuclear ions or the electrons and the protons independently flying around in a plasma like you have in the sun, but you still have the atomic nucleus. Now the atomic nucleus is made of neutrons and protons as I've said, and as you've seen uh, those of you here two days ago I had this precision-engineered model of a proton. You may remember this pink-coloured thing that was made out of plastic or polystyrene. And you see that inside the proton there were these three little quarks. And so the modern picture that we have of the atomic nucleus is you get three little quarks that have gripped each other together to make a proton or a neutron, and three more little quarks that have gripped themselves together to make a proton or a neutron, and then these protons and neutrons build up the atomic nucleus. But you can get this sort of feeling that the quarks are sort of frozen in. The quarks are frozen together to make a proton or a neutron, and so forth. So the idea is, if we smashed atomic nuclei together at very high energies, could you form a configuration where the quarks, if you like, were melted? Rather than being frozen into individual protons and neutrons, they flowed freely throughout the whole of this nuclear volume into what's called a quark gluon plasma. And that is the background to the experiments that uh, are now just beginning uh, in New York State at a place called RIC, R-H-I-C, the Relativistic Heavy Iron Collider. And here is a picture of the particular accelerator. And uh, it's got two tunnels, one where the nuclei are zooming around that way, and the other one where the nuclei is moving around that way, then you smash these atomic nuclei, these heavy ions, head on into each other. And the question is then, is there a melting that takes place? Do you get a quark-long plasma? Well, you get when you smash your nuclei together, you get a huge amount of stuff that comes out, and you get beautiful images of the trails, of the particles that are shooting out, and that probably doesn't mean very much to you, it doesn't mean very much to me either, um, other than to show the experiments have started, and uh, you're getting... Events appearing which, in fact, almost look like artwork. I mean, this is a, a, a head on view um, after these nuclei have smashed into each other, and the bits and pieces that have come out spraying across the detector, it almost looks like the iris of an eye. I can see that you could turn these things into nice artwork. Okay, so uh, the experiments have started, they have uh, been smashing atomic nuclei together, and uh, the, the hints, uh, the early hints, are that indeed. Uh, they are melting them and that gluon plasma uh, is being created and now being studied and we're still here which is actually probably a piece of good news um, but uh, that's being a bit facetious the, the question of course was um, have we just played with chance and been lucky or did we have good reasons to believe that we'd still be here and in turn in five years time when even more powerful experiments are taking place at CERN can we again under what circumstances can we believe that everything will be okay? Well. I will now give you the reasons why I don't think there's anything to worry about. Um, One is theoretical and one is very practical. So uh, let's go back to the the little analogy that I had of the, uh, of the the cosmic flusher. Quantum theory says that if indeed there is a lower energy state in the universe that you could flush your way down, then there will be a quantum tunnel that gets you there. uh, All the little pictures I was showing with, with the hill and the two valleys either side. We happen to be living in the valley on this side. Quantum theory says there are two ways you can get from this valley to the other one. One is you can lift your way all up to the top of the hill and run down the other side, which is what these experiments uh, so could be doing or you can tunnel through the hill and quantum theory says you will necessarily be able to tunnel through the hill the chance of you doing it gets smaller and smaller and smaller if you like the further away that those two valleys are but you know we've been here for 10 billion years and if you sort of do the sums you find that if there was a, a, a more stable state that we hadn't reached in quantum theory in 10 billion years The chances of you reaching it in an experiment that's done here by going up at the top and down again again, is essentially uh, nothing at all. But maybe you don't believe in quantum theory. Um, If so, well, um, maybe you're happier if you believe in experiments. And that's what I call the cosmic rain. Because what I've been doing here is hiding the the right-hand side of the figure since this is like the magician you know they they prepare the trick and they they lead your attention away at the critical points and then only at the end of the trick does it come around i've been telling you all about this Uh, you know we're going to be increasing the temperatures up to these extreme conditions blah 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 but of course if i slide this back again remember where we came in it may be the first time that humans have done this experiment but the universe has done the experiment before in other words the universe has been there, done that, got the t-shirt, so to speak. And it survived the first time round. Uh, so what is, it, what is it that we're doing new? You might say, well, you know, maybe even so. There is another state and it just by chance happened to land up in this one and we're still going to tip the balance. Well, again, that's exceedingly unlikely because the other part of this story, I said, was what I called the cosmic rain. And that's what I wanted you to, to come to. The end here. So uh, this is a picture you can see of mountainsides with balloon up in the top here, and so forth. The Eiffel Tower down the bottom, and lots of lines coming through. Uh, the, the point is this: we, we live down here, high above our heads. I mean, the atmosphere extends, and high-energy particles are hitting the atmosphere all the time. The cosmic rays—they're produced in in stars. We don't know in detail all the mechanisms. Uh, they're produced with energies far in excess of anything that we can even imagine producing in an accelerator on Earth. You might ask then why do we do the experiments? Well the point is that 1940s, 1950s, it was by observing the effects of these cosmic rays coming from outer space free of charge, if you like, hitting the upper atmosphere and causing these you know, cascades and so on and so forth, uh, that revealed to us for the first time that there are forms of matter that don't exist here on Earth. They were called strange particles. And we now know it's because they're made of strange quarks. So cosmic rays have been delivering us uh, free of charge to outer space, uh, all these exotic particles, you know, at, at random. It then inspired us to build these accelerators in the 1950s that could simulate these conditions to order, with very high intensity, under-controlled things that you could do experiments with. Now, what's not generally appreciated is that the energies of these cosmic rays go, as I said, far, far beyond anything at all that we'll be doing in these experiments, or any experiments in my grandchildren or their grandchildren's lifetime. So, if there were some weird form of matter that was going to be inadvertently made when two high-energy particles collide in RIC or in, in CERN, this sort of thing will be happening out there in space all the time, with cosmic rays colliding. And uh, so if there was some horrendous uh, basement that we're going to fall into, a bubble of it would be approaching us at the speed of light already. I mean, that uh, we wouldn't be here having discussion. So when you put all the numbers together, either on what we understand about the nature of the universe and quantum theory and so forth, which says you could have tunneled into this new state of matter if it was there, and we haven't done, so it ain't. Or, from experiments, the fact that cosmic rays are going into those extreme conditions all the time, and nothing untoward has happened. Or the fact that the universe itself has been even more extreme conditions before we got here. Uh, In a sense, we are not, in high-energy physics language, going to extreme energies. It sounds very, very dramatic. When I talk about these energies of ten with many zeros afters of GEV, Somebody said to me once, how big is the Planck energy scale? This is the one where mini black holes would be formed. I said, well it's the same sort of energy that a sort of rather sleepy slug has hanging on a lettuce leaf. The point is that that slug has got 10 to the 23 atoms that it shares the energy between. We're just focusing it into to one thing. So we're making a very concentrated form, but in absolute terms it's actually very small. So uh, I don't think there's anything to worry about, he says, as he runs out the door before you sue me. Um, But that, in part, I felt was an example, or just to go one further, these cosmic rays, uh, we know all about them, and and nowadays they're passing through us as as we give the talk. And if I had a a spark chamber here, you could actually see them. And here's a picture of a spark chamber. It's essentially a set of wires at different potentials. And if an electrically charged particle zooms through, it short-circuits the thing, and a spark follows. And if you get the chance to go to some university open day sometime, or or to a laboratory, they often have these things on as a demonstration. You can see the sparks happening as particles come shooting through. And the most dramatic way of all is if you have a a spark chamber in two halves. So you've got one half up here with the sparks, then there's a gap, and then the spark's down the bottom, and you put your hand in the gap. And you will see of things zooming straight through which have gone through your hand but you never knew about it. So these things are zooming through us all the time. Cosmic rays are uh, coming through all the time. We detect them. We know a huge amount about them. And uh, out there, things are happening far beyond anything we'll ever be able to do here. So um, I think there's, uh, there is nothing at all in our theories and there's nothing at all in what we know about things. Uh, there's plenty of evidence to the effect that there isn't a disaster waiting to happen. And uh, so i just close the story with... Uh, The the report that was written. So as I said, it was written scientifically correctly. I cannot say, I cannot promise you that something (laughs) will not happen. All I can say is it is exceedingly unlikely. And by exceedingly, I mean less likely than the least likelihood you can even imagine. And that's the best that science can say. But you, you know what the problem is. It's like the NNR question as well. You know, One cannot say, this is not the case. One can say, we have found no evidence that it is the case. And for the public, that sounds a bit iffy. But actually what you're really saying is, it won't happen. And I said to the guy who was the chair of the committee, I said, you know, for the general public, I said, perhaps it would have been safer if you had said, it won't happen. We won't destroy the universe. He said, but we can't say that scientifically. And I said, yes, but if you said it, and you were wrong. No would ever know. <laughs> For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.